Take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 14. We're going to look at a, uh, a story here, something that's really mentioned here in this interaction between a guy named Melchizedek and another guy named Abram. And uh, so as you're turning there, we'll get to this passage in just a minute in Genesis 14. Uh, Melchizedek is one of these characters that's rarely mentioned in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, he gets, uh, he gets pretty good mention in the book of Hebrews. Uh, but we're not studying the character of Melchizedek today. A lot of Christians like to study that character, ask questions like, well, is Melchizedek, is that really Jesus in pre-incarnate form and things like that? We're not, we're not going to study Melchizedek today, but we're going to look at something that uh, God has called. It's a name or a title that God has called by Melchizedek and also Abram, and it's the uh, title El Elyon, that's Hebrew, El Elyon, it means Most High God. And so we're going we're to look, look at this idea. Now you may, if you're a student of the Bible, have heard the word El before. Uh, the word El in Hebrew uh, just means God. It's a very generic name for God. Many times, oftentimes, it refers to the God of the universe, the God, the Creator God. But sometimes... It refers to beings that are greater than a human, but maybe not as great as God. And so, for an, for an example, if some arrogant foreign king thought, you know, I'm a god, you know, and he, he declared himself to be a god, well, a, a, an Israelite might refer to that person uh, as El. Uh, and we would call it maybe a god with a little g, you know. And, uh, and so the word El is simply a generic term. Sometimes it refers to describe other spiritual beings that are less than the God of the universe, but greater than humans. And so, for example, if the Philistines in the Old Testament, they worshipped a, a false god named Dagon. And Dagon was the god of the grain. They, they wondered where their grain came from. They ascribed it to this god Dagon. And so, if, they, if the Philistines were speaking Hebrew, they would refer to their god Dagon as El. They, that's who their, their god was. And, and similarly, the Canaanites worshipped a very famous false god in the Old Testament named Baal. And they, if they were speaking Hebrew, they would have referred to their god Baal as El. And so here's the question. You know, when we come across... Uh, the term El in the Old Testament, or when translators come across that, how, how are we to distinguish between when it's talking about the God, the creator God of the universe, the God of Israel, or, on the other hand, it's referring to royalty, or it's referring to some other spiritual being, uh, either imaginary or real, that, that may exist in the heavenly places. Um, well, context is a big indicator. You, you can usually tell by context whether uh, the word God refers to the God or just sort of, we might say, a God, a little false God or, or something less than the God. And in English, what we typically do is, and what translators typically do in your Bible, is that they'll refer to the God with a capital G, right? And uh, a false god or a lesser spiritual being with a letter, a lowercase g for God. But believers in the Old Testament, uh, believers in those days, in ancient days, they did something else that helped to distinguish between the God and 
other lesser spiritual beings. Here's what they did. They used their language, they used their words to specify exactly which L, E-L, they were referring to. For example, in the Old Testament, the God is called Elohim. It's a very specific name, a very specific idea, Elohim. The word Elohim is used about 2,500 times in the Old Testament, and so it's, it's a big deal uh, to use that term Elohim. And Elohim is a plural word, by the way. Now, in English, you know how to make a, a word plural, like the word cats, uh, as, as uh, to be distinguished between the word cat. You got cat, that's one cat, that's plural. We put an S at the end. Well, in Hebrew, they don't put an S at the end. They put an I-M, an im, the term im at the end. And so Elohim is a plural word, but it refers to God, the creator God. And uh, now why is it plural? Well, it's plural either because it's an indicator, a sort of a clue, that God, the God, is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. It's either a clue of the Trinity, or at the very least, it is an indicator of intensity. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes, even in English, you and I use words, we, uh, pl the plurality of words, or we'll repeat words to indicate intensity. For example, if someone said, hey, did you see that accident out there? And I said, oh, no, I didn't see the accident. Was it bad? And they replied back, yeah, it was bad, bad. Now, bad, bad may be bad English, but you know it's a bad accident if it's bad, bad, right? And so we do this type of thing. We, we put a plural on something to indicate intensity, or we repeat words to indicate intensity. Uh, one biblical writer put it this way when, when the Old Testament writers were talking about uh, Elohim. One modern commentator said this, God makes himself known by the word Elohim as the Lord of intense and extensive glory and richness as he exercises his preeminence and power in the created cosmos. That's who Elohim is. I'm going to repeat that because that's pretty, pretty intense right there. God makes himself known by the word Elohim as the Lord of intense and extensive glory and richness as he exercises his preeminence and power in the created cosmos. And so at the very least, Elohim refers to that God, the God that is unlike anyone else that has ever been or will ever be. And the word Elohim, again, might be a clue in the Old Testament that the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is true. Now, another example of how believers in the Old Testament use their language to distinguish between L's, to distinguish between lesser spiritual beings, and the God of the universe, um, might be, a good example might be when there was a woman in the Old Testament who ascribed a name to God. And this woman's name was Hagar. And she called God a very specific name. Let me tell you about Hagar's story. Hagar was a slave 
to another woman named Sarai. Sarai happened to be Abram's wife. When I say Abram, we're talking about the same guy who was later known as Abraham. And Sarai went to her husband Abram, and they were both very old at this point. And Sarai went to her husband Abram and said, you know, she said something like this, the Lord promised you a family, but the Lord has stopped me from having kids. So the only way, Abram, we're going to fix this situation is if you go sleep with my slave, Hagar. And I'm sure Abram looked at her and said, is this a test? I mean, is this one of those things where, where you say yes, but you really mean no? I mean, come on now. Is this a test? And, and, let, and let me ask you this, Sarah. Are you going to get mad at me later if I do this? And she's like, no, 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 no. I'm dead serious. It's not a test. Go right ahead. I promise I won't get mad at you later. <laughs> Gentlemen, let me just tell you. Anytime your wife says, I won't get mad at you later, she will get mad at you later. I'm not saying she's lying. I'm saying she will change her mind. And she will get mad at you later. Well, so Abram said, well, if you insist. I will go sleep with your much younger and prettier slave girl. But I'm not going to like it. And I'm only doing it for you, baby. And so he did. And guess what happened? Hagar the servant, Hagar the slave, got pregnant. Sarai's plan worked. And then she got mad. I mean, she got really mad. And you can probably guess what happened between these two women at this point. Because on the one hand, you have the wife who can't have any kids. And on the other hand, you have the mother of the child, the, the mother of the child that's yet to be born. And the only thing you're missing in this whole picture is Jerry Springer. I mean, this is not a good situation at all. These two women at this point do not like each other. And so who did Sarai take it out on? The first person she took it out on was her husband, Abram. And she said, and I quote, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between you and me. I mean, she's bringing down judgment on Abram, her husband. And Abram's like, what did I do? It was your idea. And you told me that you wouldn't get mad. But at this point, truth has nothing to do with it. Logic has nothing to do with it. Abram has a problem. He has an angry wife. And when you have an angry wife, you, pro you try to fix the angry wife problem that you have. And that's what Abram said. He replied back to Sarai, here. Your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. And the Bible says, Then Sarai mistreated Hagar so much that Hagar ran away from her. Now, the person who's sort of stuck in the middle of this marital 
uh, squabble is someone who's not in the marriage. It's Hagar. And you almost feel sorry for her because she's stuck in the middle. She's pregnant and she's run away. She has no way to support herself. No way at all to support herself. She has run out of options. She had no hope. She was all alone. She had to have been scared. She had to have been worried. Have you ever felt like that? No good options. No matter what you do, it's the wrong thing. Right? You got no hope. You're all alone. You're worried. You're scared. Well, sometimes that's exactly when God shows up. When we need him the most. So what happened with Hagar? The angel of the Lord found Hagar. And he told Hagar, return to your master. Return to your mistress, Sarai, and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord promised her, you will have countless descendants. And this comforted Hagar. And then Hagar responded by calling God a very specific name. She didn't just say, you are El, a very generic name for God. She said, you are El Roy. Now, that sounds funny to us, because Roy is like a name, right? But in Hebrew, the word Roy means the one who sees me. That's who God is. God is not just God out there, but he's the God who sees me. And if you've ever been discouraged and hurting and in pain and you don't know where to go, there's no good options. Turn to the Lord because He's the God who sees you. That's the term El Roy. Another term that the Israelites used in ancient days is El Shaddai. The God of all power. We'll look at that one next week. But today, I want to focus on this one that Melchizedek and Abram encountered. And it was El Elyon. God Most High. Or we might say, the Most High God. Those terms are interchangeable. Here's what we read in Genesis chapter 14. Verse 18. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Otherwise, look on the screen behind me. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. El Elyon. He blessed Abram and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, El Elyon, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then the king of Sodom, a third person, comes along, the king of Sodom. And Sodom said to Abram, hey, all those people that you captured in the battle that you just fought, give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. 
But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord God most high, El Elyon, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that belongs to you. So you can never say, I made Abram rich. What does that term mean? The most high God or God most high. Here's what it means. It is an indication that God is the greatest of anything that might otherwise be called a God. The God is greater than royalty. The God is greater than false gods. The God is greater than angels. The God is greater than demons. The God is greater than the devil. The God is greater than any spiritual being that might exist. Now, I'm not exactly sure what you believe about other spiritual beings that might exist in the spiritual realm. A lot of Christians have a very simplistic belief about the beings that inhabit the spiritual realm. A lot of Christians believe that the spiritual realm is inhabited by God, that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, angels, Satan, the devil, Lucifer, that guy, demons, and that's it. But the Bible indicates that the spiritual realm is much more complex than that. For example, in Psalm 82, God is seen as judging the members of a council that he created. So here's God in this psalm. He's pictured as the judge. He's not judging a human. He's not judging a nation. He's not judging uh, the world. He's not judging a lot of different things. The specific thing that he's judging is a divine council made up of spiritual beings that he created. And what he did when he created these spiritual beings is that he gave them administration over the affairs of the cosmos. Now that's the idea in Psalm 82, and God is the judge over it. And you might say, well, that sounds sort of far out. That sounds sort of crazy. I've never heard anything like that before. Well, understand this. All ancient Mediterranean cultures had some conception of divine counsel. You know, some believed in, like I said, uh, Dagon. The Philistines believed in Dagon. The Canaanites believed in Baal. But that wasn't the only gods that they believed in. And, and they didn't believe that in multiple gods that never talked to one another. They believed that these gods got together and they formed a, like a committee. And you might wonder, well, maybe that's why the world's messed up. It's run by a committee. Um, but they formed a committee to try to administrate the affairs of the earth. And so all Mediterranean cultures had this concept, including ancient Israelite culture. They believed in it too, but the Israelites believed in something very, very specific about it, some distinctive things about that. And so people viewed the, these gods as members of a divine council that influenced things on earth. And so, so that's the viewpoint. Whether or not you believe that, or not, is up to you, but that was the viewpoint. And a guy by the name of Asaph in Psalm 82, who wrote that psalm, he wrote this psalm in which the God, 
stands as a judge over the divine counsel of lesser spiritual beings that influences things on the earth. And here's what that psalm, how that psalm reads. In Psalm 82, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version uh, because it's the best translation of this. God has taken his place in the divine counsel. Let me stop right there. The idea is that this council is set up, and in comes God, the creator of all of them. And he takes his place at the head of the table, if you will. And it says, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And this is what God says to the other gods that he's holding accountable. He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Stop right there. Don't change the slide yet. God is pronouncing judgment over these, this council of lesser spiritual beings. Why? Because he gave them some level of administrative control or influence over the earth. And they're failing at their job. They're not holding Justice as a high value. In fact, they are showing partiality to the wicked. And so the good people of the earth are getting harmed. The wicked people are succeeding left and right. And God is holding these influencers on this council accountable. And then it says Selah. Selah is a Hebrew term. It's a, it's a musical term that means pause for a minute. And what it means for us is, think about that. Chew on that for a minute. Consider that. That's what the word selah means when you run across that. And then God's judgment continues in verses 3 and 4. God says to this council of lesser spiritual beings, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That's what God wanted his counsel to do. And they failed. And then Asaph writes in verse 5, They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, this is God speaking again. I said, and he's speaking to these lesser spiritual beings, you are God's sons of the Most High. All of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. You see what God is saying to these lesser spiritual beings that he he put into place in order to influence things on earth. He said, you think you're going to live forever, but judgment's coming and you're going to die just like a man. And then Asaph concludes the psalm by saying, this is an appeal to God that he's making. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, don't miss that last part. Because this is a part of this worldview, this concept. 
if Asaph is saying to God, you shall inherit the nations, the implication is that God is not yet in control or the inheritor of all of the nations of the earth. But there's coming a day when he will inherit them. So what's this about? Well, we'll get to this in just a second. But here's the question that I'd ask right now of Psalm 82. Is this just sort of poetic language that sort of elevates God over all of the fictional, imaginary, so-called gods that people invent in their minds? I mean, is it like, you know, a, a child saying, oh, I'm scared of the boogeyman. And you say to the child, oh, God is bigger than the boogeyman. And it comforts the child. But by saying God is bigger than the boogeyman, you're not really saying that the boogeyman exists, right? Is that what's going on here? That the, this council really doesn't exist? It's just sort of made up things in, in people's mind, but God is greater? Is that all this is, just sort of poetic language? I mean, if that's the case, you know, uh, then, then what the psalmist is saying is that God is greater than any fictional being that you can come up with. Or, does Psalm 82 describe how things really are in the spiritual realm? Are there spiritual beings that sit on a council? And do they have some measure of influence on the earth? Well, I've studied this, this subject in some detail and my personal view is that this divine counsel idea is biblical and real. You see, the Bible describes much more than simply angels and demons in the spiritual realm in the way that we typically think of them. In fact, Psalm 82 isn't the only psalm, or the only place in the Bible for that matter, that describes a council of lesser spiritual beings that God set into place to administrate things in the heavenly realm. You see, according to this understanding, what has happened in the spiritual, what has happened is that these spiritual beings on the divine council, they started doing things in a way that was displeasing to God. And so instead of influencing humans to seek justice on the earth, justice on the earth was avoided, or justice on the earth was even perverted. And by the way, I would just ask you to ask this, answer this question. You know, is the injustice that you and I see on the earth simply the result of sin, or are there unseen spiritual forces that work at pushing an unjust agenda? I know my answer to that question. And the other part of what God was displeased with was this, that the members of the divine council should have influenced humanity to glorify God, but instead... They began to influence humanity to glorify themselves instead of God. Now, what's some of the history of this? Well, you remember the Tower of Babel incident in Genesis chapter 11? Where God separated the nations, gave them different languages. Well, a lot more was going on than just that. Listen to how Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses 8 and 9, describes what happened at the Tower of Babel. This is on the screen. When the Most High, El Elyon, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples 
according to the number of the sons of God. Do you see that? According to this worldview, when God divided the nations, it was according to the number of members on the divine council. And then we read, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. And so the Lord gave, according to this view, the members of the divine council, each a territory or a people, if you will, to administrate over. But the Lord would keep a people for his own. And that was Israel. And so at Babel, when the Most High dispersed the nations, this is what happened. First of all, he disinherited them. He disinherited them. Secondly, he divided them according to the number of the sons of God on his divine counsel. Sons of God being a term that's used of lesser spiritual beings. And by the way, in Genesis chapter 10, there's how many nations listed in the, in the table of nations? There's 70 listed. In Genesis chapter 10. And we would imply that there's 70 sons of God on the divine council. But the third thing he did in the Babel event was that he gave them over to those sons of God. And so Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses 8 and 9 describes, at least to their worldview, what happened in Genesis 10 and 11. That God dispersed the nations. He apportioned them to the sons of God. And those sons of God, those members of the divine council, were given some administrative influence over different ancient nations. Now, where Deuteronomy 32 describes how God took the nations of Genesis 10 and 11 and gave them over to the sons of God, there's a parallel passage. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, it shows the flip side. It shows how God took the sons of God on the divine council and gave them to the nations that he split apart at the Babel event. Here's what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. God is speaking to his people and he says, Beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven... And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars all in all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down, to, bow down to them and serve them. Because these are things that the Lord your God has allotted to the peoples under the whole heaven. He has, in other words, God has given all of the creation to the rest of the world so that they might worship them. But you are different. Verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of His own inheritance, as you are this day. What was happening at the Babel event was so egregious that God essentially started over. And when God started over, God called a man out of a city named Ur. And this man's name was Abram. 
And what did God do in the very next chapter? Genesis 10, the League of Nations. In Genesis uh, chapter 11, the nations are split apart and given over to the sons of God. Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram to himself and he says, You are mine. And it was through Abram that God would have a people all for himself. And it is through Abram and his family that they, this one little nation, the least of all the nations, would be a light to all of the other nations on earth. And it was through Abram that God sent a Messiah to save all of the other nations of the earth. And by saving them, they would no longer worship the lesser so-called gods that they've been given over to, but they would worship the one true God, El Elyon, the Most High God. And so even though God gave all of the nations of the earth over to worship lesser gods, and he did this, by the way, because of their disobedience, this is a temporary situation. In Genesis chapter 1, God claimed ownership of one man. That's it. That's all God wanted. He claimed ownership of one man. And through that one man, he gave that one man and that one man's childless wife a son. And that son grew over the decades and over the generations into the nation of Israel, which produced a Messiah that would eventually save all of the nations that God disinherited. So now, today, God has ownership not only of Abraham's descendants, but also of Gentiles, even Texans. So let me ask you, what do you believe? You can believe what I would judge to be an overly simplistic view of the spiritual realm, and that's fine if you do. Uh, it's not something that we should separate over. It's not something that as believers we, we, could, we could agree to disagree on the subject and be okay with one another. But I'll tell you what I believe. I believe that God is the God Most High. He is the Most High God. I believe that the Most High God who created all the things in the spiritual realm. The Most High God who appointed some of them to a divine council to administer and influence the affairs of earth. I believe in the Most High God that divided the nations. The Most High God who assigned the nations to members of His divine council. The Most High God who sits in judgment of the members of His council, who failed in their responsibility to administer justice and glorify God. The Most High God who will one day pass a sentence of death on these lesser spiritual beings, and the Most High God who calls people, all people, by the way, everywhere, regardless of your race, regardless of your background, regardless of your wealth, regardless of anything else, God calls all people everywhere to worship Him and Him alone. This Most High God called His Son to become one of us. His name's Jesus. And it's through Jesus, who lived a life without sin, 
who died on a cross to pay for all of my sins and all of your sins, who rose from the grave to give us eternal life, it is through him that if we choose to believe and follow him, that we can also inherit eternal life. We can have the forgiveness of sins. And so if you want to receive Jesus, it's very simple. You have to admit that you're a sinner. Probably none of us would have a problem with that, that we've done wrong things. But secondly, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in Him and Him alone. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one in charge. And you need to commit your life to following Him. And if you'll do that and just say yes to Jesus, He will come into your life. He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll always be your friend, your confidant, your guide. And He will be your Lord.